My name is Eduardo Briseño, and my leadership lesson is that in order to increase our performance over time, we need to focus not only on performance, we also need to embed learning into what we do every day. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's editor. On today's episode, we hear from Eduardo Brinceno, who explains why positive feedback can be harmful. We discuss whether Elon Musk is right that the future of work is no work and explore what you can learn from Napoleon about management. That's all on the Leadership Lessons agenda. With me are MTs Antonia Garrett-Peel and Ailish Cronin. First up, the future of work is no work. Antonia, you've been exploring this for us. What did you find out? So I'm not sure if either of you were aware of this, but um, last Thursday was actually quite a special day. So it was the one year anniversary of the launch of ChatGPT. And I don't know about you, but that kind of seems crazy to me because it feels like we've been talking about artificial intelligence forever. But of course, that was the event that kind of really caused the conversation to blow up. And one of the sort of most prominent topics of discussion has been over kind of the impact the tech might have on the jobs market. And Sir Musk's comments, which he made at the AI Safety Summit, represent, if you like, the really extreme end of this debate. So just to remind our listeners, he said that there will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to for personal satisfaction. So I spoke to a range of experts to find out whether there was any truth to this claim. Now, Julian Birkinshaw, he's a professor of strategy at London Business School, was very dismissive of this idea. What he did say, however, is that it's arguable that um, the technology is triggering a similar kind of revolution in the world of office work to that as was unleashed by industrialization in manufacturing and farming. And I thought this was a really interesting point because, of course, fears about technology usurping workers aren't new. This precipitated a whole movement during the Industrial Revolution. And 43 years ago, the New York Times ran the headline, A Robot is After Your Job. Birkinshaw argued, though, that we should think about disruption as happening at kind of the level of the task rather than the actual job. As to quote him, there are very few people whose entire job will be replaced by AI. Although he did note that if, say, 50% of tasks were taken over by the tech, then businesses would just simply hire fewer workers. It's interesting what you said about the um, Industrial Revolution. And during that time, we saw this rise of the Luddites who were very much against a lot of the technology that was considered very much against a lot of the emerging technologies during that time. And I suppose those are the sort of similar concerns that we have now. It's new and emerging technologies that seem to be encroaching on human jobs. So I wonder if we're going to see a new generation of Luddites or technophobes coming out sort of campaigning against a lot of this. It's happening at the level of the task and not the job as a whole, because I suppose that you will still need a person to input the data into whatever kind of AI program that you have there's always there has to be somebody who's got to input that data to make them the robot do what it needs to do unless the technology is going to evolve to a certain point where it doesn't need a human behind it well so the contributors i spoke to kind of had various ideas about what new roles might be created so obviously prompting's one that's been talked about a lot and then potentially that there might be more roles in things like monitoring and one of the people I spoke to said that, for example, these big projects that you have in professional services firms nowadays might have perhaps 10 people on a team, but in future that might be three people. And then you'll have these intelligent AI systems 
on the team as it were as well I think as well one topic that we did discuss quite a bit was about sort of creative jobs and when I raised this point most people did seem pretty united in the view that some form of human input will still be needed and that it might be the case a bit more of AI acting as a kind of creative co-pilot. So Julian Birkinshaw, for example, said that if you take, for example, writing, as generative AI will become kind of the baseline that's available to everyone else, you'll therefore need a human to elevate and make that piece of writing stand out. And so all those sort of qualities that humans can bring to the mix, judgment, intuition, will be necessary to make sure that your piece of writing is actually taking the conversation forward rather than I guess just getting lost in the sort of general noise. I was speaking to someone the other day about this point it's Haymarket's lead actually so a bit self-referential here but he was saying he thinks that the power of sort of the experts will become more and more important so I know we had the whole gove we've had enough of experts saying this might now swing to the other other side because all the kind of low-hanging fruit can be done easily by AI but actually having specialists and the people that actually have deep knowledge can add context, have judgment on things. That's what will be more required in the future. Human expertise will be even more valuable, perhaps, even though we're seeing this emergence of AI technology, as you said, they're coming in to do the easier stuff. And therefore, we're placing kind of human expertise at an even higher level. And that's becoming the coveted jobs now, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that was a good point, And it was something that was raised at, you know so far at least so you take the legal profession a lot of the tasks that are being automated are kind of in sort of the research arena and perhaps jobs that people lower down the hierarchy would be doing so I guess you could look at that optimistically in that there's a chance for those people to retrain or upskill and move to the next level rather than having their jobs taken away from them. Something that you wrote in your piece which was I thought that was really interesting was the point about pro worker tools and how instead of it being kind of set up like this sort of sci-fi fantasy, the robots are coming, they're going to take everything over. We should be focusing on how it helps humans to kind of be better in the future and how it can help. So create it as a tool that's in service of a human as opposed to replacing one. Yeah, so that was the point that Darren Asimoglu raised. He's an economist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he argues that currently too much attention is being given to mimicking the intelligence of humans and replacing them rather than, like you said, making AI useful to workers. And he thinks this agenda is being driven both by managers, which he argues favour automation as a means of cutting labour costs, and also by the kind of mindset and philosophy in the tech world. And so you mentioned those pro-worker tools that would serve people in their roles. And so, for example, like if this was an electrician, they could use generative AI as a sort of portable tool to kind of enable speedy problem solving. But I think what he said was that currently there's just very little investment being put in this direction. So far, the debate about AI has been, you know, there's a lot of talk about the existential threat, etc. It's going to change everything. I think two things. And one is that we will probably be finding the limitations of AI. And if you speak to people that are actually practically using it and experimenting with it, they are finding that it has limits in its current form. Now, whether that changes over time is another matter, but it's currently not at the level that I think some of the hyperbole is suggesting. And then secondly, I think we need to remember that humans are creating this technology and we have the power to decide at this point anyway, how we use it and how it kind of fits in with us. And it needs to be, as you say, something we work with rather than replacing us. Yeah. (laughs) 
Now, Ailish was in Vegas recently at NetSuite's annual conference and she caught up with the former CFO of YouTube. What did he say, Ailish? So I spoke with Martin Conn, who is the president and chief operating officer at Cohere, which is a multinational tech company specialising in large language models, which is a type of AI that can imitate human intelligence. And he used an interesting analogy to explain how some of these emerging generative AI technologies work. And he said we should think of them as though they are our annoying uncle at Easter Sunday dinner, who seems to know the right answer to everything, but you can never quite verify whether he's actually right or wrong. There's no way to tell because he speaks with so much confidence, regardless of whether there's any real truth to what he's saying. And often that's how these AI technologies behave. Many of them don't have a way to fact check the information they're giving you, which doesn't help combat the spread of misinformation that often comes from these chatbots, which is what Cohere is trying to do. It's trying to teach these chatbots to not know everything for itself, but to look for information from authoritative sources rather than from across the web as a whole. He said, just like I don't wake up and study every fact I might be asked that day, instead I check a reliable source. We're teaching these models to do the same. And he also offered some advice for leaders who are looking to adopt AI technologies, and that's simply just to stick to something low risk that they can deploy before moving on to something a lot more complex, which is very similar to what Evan Goldberg, the co-founder and president of NetSuite, who I also spoke to, check that piece out on Management Today's website, He said leaders should start working with publicly available chatbots and technology before moving on to the more specialist stuff. So start off easy. Don't put the pressure on yourself to immediately go in with all of the new cool, exciting stuff. Just find the stuff that's publicly available, such as something like ChatGPT. Use it, experiment with it, see what works for you on a small scale so you can kind of mitigate any risks. And then once you've kind of got a handle on that, go ahead and try something a little bit more experimental or a little bit more advanced. Mm, I think that sounds like very sensible advice. And I really like the comment about the annoying uncle at the Easter Sunday dinner. I'm sure all our listeners know somebody a bit like that. So uh, it's a good, it's a good analogy. Now, Ridley Scott's new film on Napoleon has put the famous general back in the spotlight. Reviled and revered in ever-changing proportions, Napoleon cast such a shadow over our definition of leadership that 202 years since his death, Overambitious executives are still accused of having a Napoleon complex. Elon Musk and Bill Gates are fans, and there's even a rumour that Jeff Bezos now owns the wooden floor on which Napoleon proposed to his first wife, Josephine. Fun fact for you. Paul Simpson has written a piece for our site about why Napoleon will continue to intrigue future leaders, partly due to his meteoric rise. He was a captain at 22, emperor at 35, and permanently exiled at 45, which is quite an interesting um, trajectory. (laughs) There are six actionable insights you can learn from Napoleon, according to Paul. Number one is never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. It's pretty self-explanatory. Number two, successful leaders must offer hope. Now, Napoleon inspired his armies with a clear vision, a concrete objective, and an unshakable faith in his own genius. Again, we all know people like that. That worked well when defending France against assorted coalitions. But when he invaded Russia in 1812, yes, a bit of history here for us, only his self-belief remained. Even so, he rallied his country and army to a near victory at Waterloo, which the Duke of Wellington described as the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. 
Point three, be present. Unlike most of the generals who opposed him, Napoleon often led his battalions in person to raise morale, boost motivation, and then increase his chance of victory. This practice inspires Elon Musk's random visits to Tesla and SpaceX plants. Point four, don't micromanage. He always focused on the what and the why, not the how, something that has obviously become management law now of the best practice. But um, he was an early example of that working successfully in practice. Point five, be focused and make choices. Again, self-explanatory. Point six, realize the power of reputation. Napoleon always took great care over how he was presented. And apparently during his coronation, he snatched the crown from the hands of the Pope and crowned himself, rejecting the church's authority. And he was quoted once saying, Four hostile newspapers are more to be feared than a thousand bayonets. And just last quote from him that I liked, which is, I am sometimes a fox and sometimes a lion. The whole secret of government is knowing when to be one or the other. Now, our interview this week is all about the problem with praise. Ailish, tell us more. So I spoke with Eduardo Brunceno, who is the author of The Performance Paradox and founder of Mindset Works, which is a growth mindset program, about his views on praise and how it should be used by leaders. And a lot of this is based on the concept originated by Carol Dweck in her book Mindset. So while praise can be a really great way to encourage a team, sometimes if that praise is misdirected, it can cause employees to become obsessed with gaining approval. And we discussed how leaders can use praise in a more productive way. So comments like you're so smart or you're a natural can become detrimental because they create what Eduardo calls a fixed mindset whereby people believe that they're only good at their job because of a natural talent or fixed intelligence. And this, he believes, can lead to productivity stagnation because leaders are only complementing sort of natural strengths and things that they can do without making mistakes. So he says, instead of praising these fixed traits, leaders should instead, when someone has done something well, ask them about what they learned about a particular task or ask them what's working particularly well. This, he says, fosters a growth mindset whereby employees believe their abilities can change and develop. We also discuss the three important questions leaders should ask themselves before giving positive feedback or praise to an employee. And we delve a little bit more into his book, The Performance Paradox. So that's it from us this week. Now onto the interview with Eduardo. Just how important is it for a leader to praise their employees? It is important for leaders to acknowledge and appreciate their employees and share with them what is helpful, right? What is helpful that they're doing that is contributing value so that they know that they're appreciated and so that they know what to continue doing or do more of. And what are some of the benefits to this in terms of employee well-being and also overall productivity? Well, first of all, builds relationships, right? When people feel appreciated, then they build trust, they build relationships. It's more easier for people to also hear what they can improve, which is really important. And it's, of course, all of these feelings like relationships are basic human needs that contribute to people's well-being. So absolutely, it is a part of a healthy workplace. I suppose there's a correlation there between an employee's well-being and then their overall work performance. Absolutely, right? When people are not being praised, I'm careful to not use the word praise because often praise is done in a way that's detrimental. But when people feel that they're not appreciated, they 
might get kind of resentful and that is going to take mental cycles, right? They might be worried about where they might lose their job or what people think of them rather than thinking about the work that they're doing and how they can continue to improve their work and how they can better serve customers. So it absolutely affects people's productivity. In what way can praise be detrimental and why do you prefer to use the term appreciate? What's the difference there? Well, you know, there's a lot of research that when people praise other people, you can either praise them as using kind of fixed labels. Like often people say, you're so smart or you're so so natural. And that type of praise is detrimental because it fosters what's called a fixed mindset in other people. Fixed mindset is the belief that people are fixed the way they are. And that the reason people succeed, the reason people are good at what they are, is because there's something innate in them that, you know, something their intelligence is fixed at a high level or they have natural talents. And there's a lot of negative consequences that come from that. For one thing, people start seeking to prove themselves and how smart and talented they are rather than seeking to improve. The opposite of a fixed mindset is called a growth mindset. And it's the belief that we can change and that our abilities and qualities can be developed. And so whether we are just starting out in a particular skill or we're really experts at that skill, we can continue to get better, right? Just like the Olympic gold medalists are the best in the world, if they believe they can continue to get better and they work at that, that's what's called a growth mindset. And when we praise people, especially when they have done something well and quickly and without effort and we tell them how smart they are, they start concluding that the reason people do things well is that they are naturally smart and that then what they want to continue doing is doing the things that they already know how to do and that they seem to do without effort and without mistakes. They stay within their comfort zone and that leads to stagnation, right? Because they're not working to improve, they're not trying new things. And when they encounter challenges, when they encounter something harder, when they make a mistake, they tend to react defensively. They tend to start making up excuses as to what happened or try to kind of hide their mistakes rather than think about it and discuss it in order to learn from it. What can a business leader do to foster that growth mindset among their employees? Yeah, so one thing that's really important is to kind of set the stage, to talk about the importance of learning and development in the workplace and the fact that we all, part of what we should be doing at work is to continue to grow, to continue to learn from each other and about each other and develop our skills and learn about our customers and how we can better serve them. So how to do that, right? They should be teaching. Like great leaders are great teachers. And so they teach, for example, what feedback is and that we need to be sharing with each other our thinking and how we are each affecting one another so that we can learn from one another what's helpful, you know, what we appreciate, but also what to consider doing differently or what effect it's having on other people that we might not be aware of. So an example of kind of setting the stage is just when it comes to feedback, the easiest way to foster feedback is to encourage the soliciting of feedback, right? So where everybody's soliciting feedback, you're making it a lot easier for other people to give you feedback. And it doesn't sting because you're asking for it. And it's a lot more useful because you can ask for specific feedback around the things you're working on. So that's one thing that leaders can do is kind of set the stage. The second thing is set up the systems and habits in order for people to grow. Like for example, at LinkedIn, the top 100 leaders 
they have a weekly meeting and in a section of that meeting they talk about what they have learned each the prior week so anybody's invited to share a lesson they learned the prior week and anybody in that call can use that information to behave differently in the future. And the third thing is really, really important for leaders to do is to model learning. You know, not just say that people need to solicit feedback, but then solicit feedback themselves, right? And ask the people that they lead how what they're doing is helpful or not helpful and what they can do differently, for example, or share the mistakes that they're making and what they're learning from those mistakes or share what they're working to improve on themselves. Those are powerful things that leaders can do to foster a culture of development and a growth mindset. What are some of the things that leaders perhaps get wrong about positive feedback? I'll avoid using the word praise and say positive mm-hmm. feedback, perhaps. Is there a sort of a right way and a wrong way to do it? Well, you know, the so language is so tricky, right? It's like, yeah, praise is not bad if we are praising kind of people's behaviors and their choices and kind of not label them in fixed ways. Positive is another word that we can kind of think about because Positive feedback, when people say positive feedback, they often talk about that they mean the things that they appreciate in others that others should continue doing. And it implies that there's such thing as negative feedback. And when people think about negative feedback, they think about things that other people can learn, right? But the people who are fantastic at what they do in the the best people in the world, they love feedback that they can learn from and feedback that gives them information about what to do differently. And so I don't like to use the words positive and negative because it can create fear of information that's really useful. And so we could use, you know, kind of reinforcing feedback and critical feedback. And there's also a lot of feedback that's, you know, neither kind of reinforcing or critical. It's just useful information about what effect we're having in other people. But in terms of what are some ways to acknowledge people, to appreciate people, to share what we think is valuable that they're doing, one thing that's really important in all of this is to be honest, is to not say things that we don't mean, to say things that are in our mind, but to do it in a kind way, you know, not to do it in a mean way, but do it in a, in a kind way. And, and having set the stage of this is something that we all want from each other is to share each other's thinking so that we can learn more and understand what effect we're having in other people. Second, we can also be specific, right? So sometimes we use kind of platitudes or generalities that is not as useful to other people rather than talking about kind of specific behaviors that they did and the specific effect they had so that they can be clear about kind of what was helpful and what to continue doing more of. One of the things that employees do that gets praised a lot is going over and above in their efforts and quite often people who perhaps pull crazy all-nighters and work crazy hours and you know do so much work that it often leads to burnout and stress and those behaviors are often singled out and praised and used as the sort of standard of behavior but we're currently seeing a, a burnout epidemic throughout the professional world and and so I guess what is the issue there with praising those behaviors and perhaps what should a leader do instead? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think what we want to praise or what we want to celebrate are behaviors that reflect our values, right? And so encourage leaders to get clear about 
what values they want to champion in setting the stage. Part of setting the stage is clarifying what do we value and what behaviors does that entail. And so having balance might be one of those behaviors that we deem important in our organization or respecting each other's time outside of work hours might be something else that we value. And so then we want to kind of praise and appreciate and acknowledge when people do those things, right? And when people don't do those things, when people are burning themselves out, we want to raise that as an issue, as a concern. Hey, I see that you seem to be overworked. You know, can we talk about that? I don't want you to get burnt out. I don't want other people to feel like they need to be pulling all-nighters. So let's talk more about what's going on and what we can do to make this more sustainable for you and for all your colleagues. You've mentioned before that leaders should use questions instead of constant compliments. What does that mean? And can you kind of provide some good examples of those questions that leaders should ask? Yeah. The other thing with praise is we can praise the fixed traits of other people. That's problematic. But the other thing is sometimes we use praise kind of like as as carrots and we portray ourselves as the judges of what's good and what's bad and the people who who do the thinking and who do the assessment about whether people are doing the right thing or not. And so it's, it leads to other people doing things just ex- for extrinsic rewards for our praise. So like they want to be doing what makes us happy and rather than having them think about what makes them happy and what they think is helpful, right? And so we, we want people to be reflecting and to be kind of thinking about, you know, how are things going? What is working well? What can I improve? Rather than just us telling them that all the time. And to do that, we can ask questions that lead them to reflect and we can act more as a coach rather than as a judge. What does really good effective praise look like? Can you give me some examples of what a really good question or statement that a leader could say to their employee in order to praise them? What would that look like? Sure. I, was, I could say, Ailish, I really appreciate how you are seem to be really listening to me right now and looking in my eyes. That really is making me comfortable in this conversation. It's making me feel like we're having a conversation rather than you just kind of reading the questions that you had before. And I really appreciate that because it feels to me like You know, we are learning from one another rather than being a performative conversation. Mm. So it is about being specific about the behavior that the person is doing that is helpful and then why I appreciate it, why it's valuable. Mm. What can a leader do to make sure that their teams or their employees don't become too reliant on this sort of feedback? So great leaders are great teachers. And that I think part of that is to help people learn how to learn. And so that involves, again, like helping them build habits for reflection and for kind of peer learning and learning from different people, not just from their supervisors. Sometimes people feel that the only feedback that they should get or the only place they go to for feedback is their supervisor. But we want to create a learning culture where people are learning from colleagues and people are learning from the people in other departments and people are learning from customers. And so we can guide people and build a culture and model the way so that we're soliciting feedback broadly and frequently. And then reflecting, right? We can reflect in groups where we can have a, for example, periodic, regular checkings on our team where we're thinking, 
hey, how are we working together? What's working well? What could we improve? And make that part of the recurring agenda so that we have those conversations regularly. And then we can encourage people to do some of this reflection on their own in terms of, for example, a, a recurring calendar appointment that reminds you, right? That's an easy way to create a habit that reminds you to ask yourself certain questions like what's going well, what might I work on next and who might help me, who might have information about how I could get better at this particular skill. When a leader is sat down with one of their team members or one of their employees, how do they balance positive feedback and praise with slightly more constructive feedback? What should that ratio be? So that varies a lot by person. So I think we need to build honest, authentic relationships with people, get to know people, get to know their preferences. Each person is different rather than be more like machines where we're following a formula. That said that, you know, there's research from John Gottman and, and, and Julie Gottman where they saw that in healthy marriages, the couple's share about five times as much what they appreciate from the other than what bothers them or what can be differently from the other. Uh, so that's, if you want like a ratio, that is research that shows a ratio, but it really varies. Like in, in my book, The Performance Paradox, I talk about this CEO named Marcelo Camberos, where super, super successful, he, he started a company called Beautiful for All Industries that is now like a billion dollar uh, recurring revenue company. And one of the feedback that he received from his team at some point was that he wasn't appreciating them enough. He was only giving them feedback about what they could do differently. And what the people who his colleagues, what, what they shared with him was that gave them the impression that he didn't appreciate them. And that really stung Marcelo because he really appreciated them. Like he really thought they were doing a great job. He was just, in, he wasn't sharing that with them. And the reason he wasn't sharing that with them is that his father, his style was that he, he didn't do much appreciation to Marcelo. He just gave a lot of kind of critical feedback. And Marcelo understood that his dad really loved him and wanted the most from him. And that's why he was giving the, the critical feedback. He was using his own preferences for what he really likes critical feedback. He loves that. And so he was giving that to others and he learned that other people have different preferences. So we have to get to know each other, have conversations, give and receive feedback so that we learn kind of how much other people need and what they need. And we can kind of build better relationships and better communications over time. Mm -hmm. What should a leader do to prepare to give employees positive feedback or praise? What are some of the things that they need to ask themselves before doing that? Ideally, we want to build a habit of pointing out what we appreciate regularly and frequently and timely. Ideally, we don't want to wait a long time after a behavior, whether the behavior is a behavior we appreciate or a behavior is problematic. We don't want to wait, ideally wait a long time between that and between pointing out to the person that that was something we appreciated and had, had a great effect or something that created some problems that they might be unaware of. As leaders, we want to build the habit of noticing what we appreciate and voicing that to people in a timely manner. And if we're not in that habit yet, we can build kind of reminders like, you know, if, I, if that's a particular skill that we want to work on, we can build kind of recurring reminders 
to ourselves that that is what we want to be working on. Like I, for example, I remind myself every morning of what one thing I am working to improve. So if I'm working to improve on appreciating people more regularly, I'll remind myself every morning of what that is. And that will help me notice more, you know, when people do things that I appreciate and and voicing it more as it happens. Mm. So let's talk about your book, The Performance Paradox. What are some of the lessons that leaders can take away from that? If you could kind of give the top three lessons for management today readers and listeners that they can take away from the book sure so the first is the central premise of the book the performance paradox is a counterintuitive phenomenon that if we focus solely on performance our performance suffers often leaders focus on sending a message of we need to execute and do things as best as we know how trying to minimize mistakes and that is done with the best intentions, but it has unintended consequences that it leads to stagnation. We don't get better if we are only doing the things that we know work trying to minimize mistakes. In order to improve and to develop our abilities and capabilities, we have to engage not only in what I call the performance zone, which is doing what we think works best and minimizing mistakes, but also engaging in the learning zone, which is going beyond the known and doing things that may or may not work, experimenting, soliciting feedback is an example of that, or talking about mistakes and what we can learn from those mistakes. And so we need to embed learning zone habits into performance zone habits so that we are executing and learning at the same time like those linkedin you know weekly meetings where they have a section of the meeting to talk about what they learned that's an example of having you know embedded systems for learning into the performance systems so that's number one number two is that mistakes are really important for improvement they actually are the main driver of neuroplasticity once we are adults but at the same time mistakes can lower performance and they are problematic, right? We don't want to make mistakes when we are trying to contribute and add value. And so we, rather than talk about kind of mistakes being good or mistakes being bad, we want to have a more nuanced understanding of mistakes and think about what kinds of mistakes we want to do at what times. And that's kind of what chapter five of the book is about. So it talks about stretch mistakes, which are the mistakes we make in the learning zone. There are high stakes mistakes, which are the mistakes that we want to try to avoid because the consequences would be big. There's the sloppy mistakes, uh, which are mistakes we make that we should have known better. And there are the aha moment mistakes, which are when we do something as we intended, but then we realize that we shouldn't have done it before. And those are precious uh, learning opportunities as well. And I guess number three, I would say that it's really important for leaders to model learning right and leaders are sometimes we feel that once we're promoted or once we're in a senior leadership position we need to have the answers and we need to know and we need to be sure of ourselves and sometimes very often these leaders engage in learning very much but they do it in private right they do it at home they do it when other people aren't watching and the problem is that if we're talking about the importance of learning or feedback or experimentation but other people are experiencing us as a know-it-all the behaviors will act and, and will will speak louder than the language right and so people will emulate being know-it-alls too and they will be 
focused on improving rather than improving and they will be acting defensively to feedback and so we need to solicit feedback as leaders we need to talk about what we're working to improve we're we need to talk about what we're learning along the way and we can do that while still projecting confidence that we are competent and that the organization is geared towards success because in fact these behaviors are what allows us to adapt to change, to leverage change, and to drive change, right? To be more agile and to continue to get better over time and increase our performance over time. How can a leader put some of those lessons into practice, particularly about giving performance feedback to their employees? How can they use some of those lessons within their own organizations? The most powerful way to drive critical feedback or learning-oriented feedback is to foster a culture of soliciting feedback, to foster a culture where people are soliciting feedback all the time, frequently and broadly. Because when we solicit feedback, we just make it so much easier for everybody. We make it easier for other people to give us feedback. We make it easier for us to hear it. We make the feedback more specific because you know we, we are asking for a specific time and type of feedback and kind of feedback on a specific skill. So that is the, the number one when it comes to kind of fostering more feedback is, is really important. So how do we do that? We do that by setting the stage, talking about what do we value in this company and what behaviors does that entail? And so, you know, feedback being part of that is part of our communications. And we need to emphasize those messages much more regularly and much more than we tend to think. Leaders are nine times more likely to be perceived as under-communicative than over-communicative. And so we tend to think that we say feedback is really helpful and we tend to think that, okay, people got the message, now I've said it, I don't have to say it again. But we tend to forget a lot more than we think we will forget. And it takes time, you know, the, the, the brain takes time to rewire. But the more that neurons fire together, they wire together, we change the way that we think, we change the way we view feedback, but that involves a lot of kind of repetition and reminding. So it's about setting the stage, setting the systems, and then modeling the way by soliciting feedback all the time as leaders. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ailish. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.